Welcome to the Dwelling Place Church audio podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's message. We pray God speaks to you today through this message and through His Word. For more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org. Now, it's time to listen to this week's message. I want to preach to you a message that I'm entitling, Transferring from This Life to the Next. Transferring from This Life to the Next. We're going to talk today about heaven and hell. We're talk about the life that is to come, which in many ways is far more significant than the life we've experienced here. Now, a disclaimer up front that may disappoint some of you is I've actually never been to heaven or hell yet. It seems there are plenty of people out there who claim that they have, and the best way, of course, to publish a best-selling Christian book is to claim you've been to heaven or hell personally, and you come back and you publish that and you make millions of dollars. Now, I'm not saying that in a spiteful way, I'm really not. I'm, I'm just saying that the reality is that there's a lot of the subject of death in the news. It's been in the news recently because of a lot of different books, but one particular book written years ago called The Final Exit. It's a book written by a doctor who talks about assisted suicide. He teaches you how to commit suicide. After all, today people want to die with dignity, right? People don't want to know they themselves are in control of their destiny here on earth, and nothing is going to keep them alive when they want to go. Unfortunately, the book will not only be purchased by people who are of age and who don't want extended hospital care, but it's also going to be purchased by a lot of people who are depressed, even young people who feel like life isn't worth living, and young people who are tired of the pressures of life and school and parents, and this gives them an easy exit. You know what the problem is, by the way? In most cases, not in all cases, but when people commit suicide, when they arrive on the other side, what they're going to find there is far worse than anything endured in this life. What a terrible, terrible, horrendous shock it is going to be when some of these people land in eternity. Now, throughout the ages, people have always wondered about whether or not there is life after death. And there is evidence that comes from various kinds of so-called scientific or experiential strands of information. Let me give you a few of them. First of all, there's the word of, world of the occult, the O-C-C-U-L-T, the world of mediums. A number of years ago, I was in a, a library, and I went, and actually, this last few weeks in preparation for this series to pick up some more books about glimpsing from heaven and children's near-death experiences and the near-death experience of Mary Neal, who's an orthopedic surgeon who was held underneath the water while she was kayaking and died and was pronounced dead and came back and writes of her account. But I was reading a book from Bishop Pike, who's a pastor, a Christian pastor. He wrote a book called Entitled The Other Side, and I read about half the book. I don't recommend people in our churches to read books like this. Nevertheless, I happened to come across it. And Pike's son, who was a pastor, committed suicide. And Pike wanted to get in contact with his boy because Pike noticed that things in his room were being rearranged in such a way that he thought his dead boy wanted his attention. For example, he'd come home and find out that the clock would stop at the very moment that his son had committed suicide. Or he would see the drapes being pulled back in his room in a way that his son always pulled back the drapes. And so he assumed that it was done by his son. So he got in contact with the medium, and the medium called up the boy, and Pike had a long discussion with his son. I don't recall all the details, but I remember Pike saying, uh, asking his boy, do they talk much about Jesus on the other side? And the boy said, no, Dad, we don't talk about him a whole lot here. And as I read that, I couldn't help but smile, because if you ever die and land in a place where they don't talk a whole lot about Jesus, you're in the wrong place, my friend. I can assure you that. The wrong, wrong place. But then Pike, as a religious liberal, who had never accepted the Bible as something that's authoritative, he ended up believing that indeed, yes, that life was on the other side, and it was a relatively happy life. And his son, his son soon told him, they said, Dad, just keep doing the best you can and you'll be okay. And Pike, a very gullible theologian, believed him. Isn't that tragic? Very, very liberal theologian. Now, I'm sure that you don't need me to tell you that Pike never spoke to his son. He never had one single word with his dead son. There are, in this world, demons that watch us. Undoubtedly, some demons are assigned to us. They observe all of our activities. They hope to gain an advantage us against us in a time that's opportunity. And those demons come to know us so well that they can actually talk about us. They know where we live. They know our history. They know our weaknesses. They know our strengths. And it's those kinds of evil spirits that are called up by spiritists today, by mediums. It's amazing to me how I talk to people in the Western world, how unfamiliar they are with this spiritual world. You go to other places in the world, and Santa Maria, for instance, the Latin American world, is everywhere. It's everywhere, the occultists. Today, they don't call them spiritists, they call them channelers. 
And gullible people think that they're talking to the dead. And they're not talking to the dead. They're talking to demonic spirits who impersonate the dead. One of the most interesting things I found out in Pike's book is while he was talking to his son, suddenly, out of all things, Paul Tillich shows up and has a discussion with him. For those of you who read theology, Paul Tillich had died a few months before. He was a very liberal Protestant theologian, very liberal. And Tillich showed up and had a discussion with Pike. And Pike, again, thought it was Tillich because he said, I even noticed his thick German accent. Well, I want you to know today that demons are able to speak through other people's vocal cords with a thick German accent. Of course they are. They're that smart. They're that clever. But Pike never spoke to his son. He never spoke to Paul Tillich. He was speaking to demons and believed the whole bit. A tragedy, yes, a tragedy indeed. While I'm on the subject, I was years ago in Bossier City, Louisiana, Shreveport, and I was spending an entire summer and uh, we were talking one day at the church, and there was a young lady, it was a very troubled young lady, but we were talking about the new age and the occult, and she said, Craig, what if I were to tell you that my grandmother, who had been dead for many years, the other night came into my room and sat down on my bed, and we had a discussion together. She said, what would be your response to that? And I said, well, first of all, I want you to know that I believe your story. I won't say that you're crazy. I, I won't say that you're hallucinating. I would believe that something happened, there was an, some aberration, and you had a discussion. But I said... I would not say that you had a discussion with your grandma. You see, sometimes we forget that demonic spirits are actually so smart, they take the names of dead people, and people think that they're having a revelation from some person who's returned from the dead, and all they are encountering is a spirit that has been taken the name of that person and knows something about that person, and they are in contact with dark, deceptive, occultic powers. If you don't believe in haunted houses, you are highly misuninformed. They exist. I can assure you they exist. Even scientifically in our nation, haunted houses exist. It's been proven there are spirits in some houses. Where did those spirits come from? Are those spirits from the dead? Of course not. Jesus is so clear. A haunted house is a house in which some demons have chosen to live. And frequently when a person is himself or herself demon-possessed and they die, one of the demons will choose to stay at the point where the death occurred. And that's why you have haunted houses. Uh, in the church that we served in previous to this... Uh, there was a couple that, I won't go into all the details of the manifestations, but they believed there were some evil manifestations in their apartment. It might be a, much, a bit much for a public audience, but they could not understand why this suddenly assault from a host of hell. And uh, they were wondering, and then it dawned on them. The father of the wife was a spiritist, and he had just died, and those demonic spirits now indeed needed some place to go, and in some place to go, they decided to retaliate against the family members. And what you have today is a world in which people must understand there are demonic spirits. They're incredible deception, and they will tell you really anything you want to hear. They especially will tell you things like this, Bishop Pike. Oh, Dad, all you have to do is keep doing what you're doing, and you're going to be all right on the other side. That's nonsense. That's deception bought by gullible people who refuse to believe the Bible. Refuse. I never forget talking to another individual said, I'm in contact with spirits, and, but not evil ones. Only good ones. I said, how do you know the difference between good spirits and evil spirits? She said, I refuse all spirits that come to me in darkness. I receive only communication from spirits that come to me clothed in lights. Well, do you know what the Bible says? Look at the top of your card in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen. Paul says there are ministers of righteousness who are really ministers of unrighteousness. And he said, we should not be surprised because Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. I remember telling this woman, I want to tell you something. Did you know the greatest occultist of our day, Swedenborg? You guys know, you've read Swedenborg? Swedenborg said at the end of his life, he could not tell the difference between good spirits and bad spirits. He agreed on national television, he had been deceived. And I said to this lady, I want you to know you are deceived also. You're deceived, and I urged this girl to come to Christ and get her life straightened out. But what about dear death experiences? A lot of books written about this. I read of one called Closer to the Light, learning from the near-death experiences of children. And this man interviewed a lot of children who died or came very close to death. And I should say this man, they tell their experiences, and it's so remarkable, really, in their similarity. And you say to yourself, well, how do you know that this isn't just a hallucination? Well, what this man did is he interviewed a lot of children who were very, very ill, and a lot of them were on different kinds of drugs, and he discovered that some of them did have hallucinations, those that were on drugs, but none of them had an experience like this. You actually have to be near death to have what is called a near-death experience. It can't be had in any other way. Now, the book is filled with all kinds of stories. Let me read two paragraphs to you. This is a young boy speaking. <clears throat> I reached a certain point in the tunnel where light suddenly began to flash all around me. 
They made me certain that I was in some kind of a tunnel and the way I moved past them when I, I knew I was going 100 miles an hour. At this point also, I noticed that there was somebody with me. He was about seven feet tall and he wore a long white gown with a simple belt tied at the waist and his hair was golden, although he didn't say anything. I wasn't afraid because I could feel him radiating peace and love. No, he wasn't the Christ, but I knew that he was sent from Christ. It was probably one of his angels or someone else sent to transport me to heaven. And of course, he was celebrated and welcomed. You say, what happens one minute after you die? If you are righteous, if that is you've accepted the grace and the Savior Jesus Christ, what happens one minute after you die? You will see angels. Angels, of course, accompany. We have great insight to this in Luke 16. When the righteous man died, the angels accompanied him to Abraham's bosom. There's no doubt in my mind you will see angels. You remember in 1956 when my favorite missionary, Jim Elliott, Nick Kane, they went in. You ever seen the movie, End of the Spear? You read the book, End of the Spear? They went into Ecuador, the Huanian Indians, and they were speared that night. They were killed, all five missionaries. Years later passed, and some of these Indians came to Christ. In fact, the son of Nick gave his life to serve those Indians, and you can see pictures on the Internet of him standing with three of his dad's killers, who he would later win to the Christ, win to Christ. And it's so crazy because they took these villagers and they put them in a hut and they turned on a Christian track on a record. And when they turned on a Christian track on the tra- a, tr- a Christian worship track on the record, all of the Indians turned stark white. The blood left their faces. And they said, the night that we killed those five martyrs, we looked across the river and there were people on the tops of the trees with long white clothes and they sang just like those worshipers sang. Oh yeah, of course, angels took them home. Angels are greatly greatly desirous of these type of instances. They long to transport people. We, we will see, I never forget, and my grandmother, who was the only survivor, really living person in my family who was a Christian, she spent most of her days praying for us. Before I came to Christ, she was the only one. <coughs> Interesting enough, <clears throat> I took 19 teenagers to Asia. I was going to the Philippines, and I'd gotten on a bus and got down to Atlanta, and, and I I got a phone call that my grandmother was in her last moments. Her nitro valve had blown out in her heart, and she was in Chattanooga. So I entrusted the leaders, you know, these students, and they went on, and I got in a bus, green bus, came all the way back to Chattanooga, and I got to the Memorial Hospital at 107. And I spent the last hour of my grandmother's life with her, and I never forget, I sat down next to her, and she was a spirit-filled woman who prayed in the spirit, prayed in tongues often. I sat next to her, and I held her right hand. And over the last hour of her life, my wife was there. She can attest to it. She would every now and again, she would lift up her back up off of the bed, She would, with eyes closed, she would lift up her hands and she would say, oh, Jesus, help me over. And she would reach and then she would begin to pray in the spirit. Oh, it was beautiful. Of course she was transitioning and of course she saw Jesus. Of course she did. And she would drop again and at 2.07 p.m. I was holding her right hand and Jesus took her left hand and she left. The separability of soul and body. And oh, it was glorious. We began to weep and break out in joyous song. No one had to play a piano or guitar. We just began to sing unto the Lord. It was very beautiful. How precious in the sight of God is the death of his saints, Psalmist said. It's beautiful. Angels, of course, accompany us at our death. We see this all throughout Scripture. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 7 where somebody had a near-death experience. And this gives me the assurance that when Christians die, just before they die, they see Jesus. I have no reason to doubt that may be a possibility. You'll notice Acts 7, if you'll see, Stephen is being stoned. He's the first Christian martyr. And he says in verses 54, 55, and 56, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at Stephen. But he, full of the Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now notice this. Stephen is being stoned here. He's dying. He's not yet dead. In fact, perhaps he maybe had not even fallen down. Maybe none of the stones had even hit him yet. But already God had opened up heaven so that he could actually see heaven and see Christ. So said, Craig, what do you mean? If a believer is dying and if he is not drugged, now I want to make that clear. Many people today are drugged at death. They're drugged. Try to take care of pain. My grandmother was drugged and yet was still responding in this way. She was in deep, deep pain, losing all blood to her extremities and morphine was trying to keep her under until that blood completely drained out of her heart. It's very gruesome. But a lot of times in that drugging, they can't communicate their experiences to us because they're so drugged. But it's entirely possible that they can open their eyes and say, I see Jesus. I see Jesus. One woman said she had an experience like that, and Jesus came and took her by the hand and showed her all the different paths and said, here's the path of Buddhism, here's the path of Hinduism, here's the path of Christianity. And and Jesus wanted her to know that all the paths lead to the same place. And I thought, isn't that sweet? I can assure you that wasn't Jesus that showed you that. 
It wasn't Jesus that was talking. It was Satan himself transformed into a being of light with all the sweetness and love of ecumenism that one could possibly muster to say we're about unity. And so she comes back to tell everybody authoritatively that it doesn't matter what you believe, we're all going to the same place. Well, that is Satan masquerading as an angel of light. That's what that is. You say, Craig, why all the dogmatism? Well, I'll tell you why. Because there are messages that people write in books that are totally against what Scripture has said. Can I just say something real quick? Some of you may not like this, but God, when you really look at His Word, God does not intend for us to learn about heaven from people today who claim to have already gone. We are supposed to learn about it as we are things in the Christian life from the Word of God. All that you need is in the Word of God. You say, Pastor, are you telling us all those peoples aren't true? Their stories aren't true? I'm not in a position to tell you that. But all I can tell you is that what you need to know is in here, period. This is the book that Jesus authorized the apostles to write. He said, I'm going to make it known to them and don't believe everyone who claims to know stuff. In fact, look what the book of Revelation says. The book of Revelation ends this way. Wouldn't this be good to send to Hollywood? If anyone, I warned you, if you hear the words of the prophecy of Revelation and you add to them... God will add to you the plagues described in this book. That's not a nice verse. You add to what God says is true about the afterlife. You add to what God says is true about spirituality. These plagues will be added to you. That's not an exchange you want. I don't think anybody in their right mind wants that exchange. Aren't you glad today you came today? That's all by way of introduction, all right? So go to Revelation 21, and let's read the text together. Revelation 21. This is what the Bible says in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling of place of God is with man. He, is with, he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I love that. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And also he said, Write this down, for these words are true. They're trustworthy. And he said to me, It's done. I'm the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Many people have a secret fear about heaven. Did you know this? Namely, it sounds boring to them. It sounds like an eternal choir practice where we prance about in diapers playing harp and listen to Morgan Freeman read the dictionary all day. That sounds a hot lot more like hell than heaven to me. It's a secret fear we're never willing to admit. One prominent Christian pastor, I'm not honest, I'm, on, I'm just going to read what he said. This is a prominent Christian pastor. He said, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather cease to exist when I die. I can't stand the idea of endless boring tedium. To me, heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than spend eternity like that. And if I ask some of you to be honest, some of you would admit you feel the same way. It's, it's, it's boring. Well, that is exactly opposite of what the picture of Scripture paints. Scripture paints a much different picture, both of the joys of heaven and the torments of hell, but you have to know how to read the symbolism. So what I want to do is help us, if you will let me for a few moments, help you kind of look into the symbolism of Revelation. Because John concludes... Revelation with this vision because understanding these things will do more to shape your life perhaps more than anything else in the Bible. If you understand the truths of heaven and hell, it shapes your existence. So let's talk about heaven first. I'm going to give you five images. I put them all in alliteration. Alliteration helps you remember and it makes the lesson linger longer. All right, five R's. You ready? Number one, renewal. Heaven is about renewal. Straight from the text, by the way, verse 1 and 2. Verse 1, John describes a new heaven and a new earth. Now listen to me, church. There are two words for new in Greek. There is neos, which means brand new, and there's kainos, which means remade. Guess what word is used? Not neos. Kainos. A new heaven, a new earth that's been remade. So heaven is not some new, colorless, ethereal realm completely unlike where we are. No, no, no. Heaven is a renewed, remade heaven and earth. If a mechanic told you he picked up an Corvette from a junkyard and he remade it, he kinost it, not neost it, but kinost it, and he showed it to you, you would not expect to see something completely different. You would expect to see a flashy, souped-up version of a Corvette. That's the same thing that happens when, with the new heaven and new earth, that we get a glimpse of this in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus is called the first fruits of the new creation. 
first fruits are the first fruits of the harvest, which gives you a sampling of what's to come after. That's what Jesus' resurrection was. It was a glimpse of the future and a glimpse of the world's future. Can I get an amen, church? There was a continuity with the past. He had a body. People recognized him. He ate food, thank God. He ate food. He ate fish on the seashore. But his body didn't have the same limitations. He flies around. At one point, he, he appears or apparates into a room. Listen, I get giddy, downright giddy thinking about this. Because in heaven, we're talking about this heaven, the way you get places is you think about them. You think about them and you're already there. Because <laughs> that's what happened in Jesus' resurrected body. You think of where you want to be and boom, you're there. He did it all throughout his post-resurrection. One day God is going to, with the entire cosmos, he's going to do with the entire cosmos what he has already done with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus' resurrection is the appetizer to the full-course meal of restoration. Jesus' resurrection is the trailer to the blockbuster film of redemption. In other words, the new heaven and new earth is everything that we loved about the old heaven and old earth minus the curse of sin. Did you hear me? Being remade means everything you loved about the old heaven and old earth, it's now going to be remade in the new heaven and new earth. That means creation's beauties are going to be heightened. That means its pleasures are going to be strengthened. That means our limitations are going to be removed. Frankly, dwelling place church, I get somewhat giddy imagining what that will be like. What does the glorified heavenly Alaska look like? Some of you say the glorified heavenly Hawaii. Well, that's like hell. That's like the seventh circle of hell to a person that's transparent white like me. But what does the glorified heavenly Alaska look like? If what we see now is the cursed version of the Himalayan mountains, what would the heavenly Himalayan mountains look like? What does a glorified filet mignon taste like to a person who no longer has diverticulitis? What does a glorified, what is it like to eat at the glorified Waffle House? (laughs) How entertaining are glorified movies? Does Nick Cage star in every role? (laughs) In heaven, we'll experience pleasure without pain and beauty untainted by the curse. For there, ice cream and cotton candy are good for you and broccoli makes you gain fat. There, there's a football stadium where the Falcons win every single game and you finally feel like you can depend on Matt Ryan every Sunday. See, heaven is not so much pie in the sky as it is feast on the earth. I'm going to say that again. Heaven is not pie in the sky, it's feast on earth. In other words, this whole ultimate heaven doesn't exist yet, by the way. It's coming, John says, after God destroys the earth and the heaven and the, the old earth and the old heaven in the final judgment. You say, well, wait, Craig, doesn't the Bible talk about God being in heaven now? Or believers who die, they go to heaven now? Yes, the Bible refers to heaven as wherever the throne of God is. And to be absent from the body, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, is to be present with the Lord. So believers who have died have gone on to heaven. But the current heaven is a temporary holding place. It's like a layover. Granted, it's a great layover. (laughs) We're not talking about languishing around in the Atlanta airport, which is like the seventh circle of hell, right? It's not that kind of layover. I don't know about you, but every time I walk through Atlanta, no matter what time, I feel like I'm in the middle of the zombie apocalypse. All right? It's a tough, tough airport. But renewal is number one. Number two, reunion. There's renewal of all things, but then reunion. Verse three, look. He says, the dwelling of place of God will be with man. They shall be his people, and God will be with them as their God. Heaven is where God and his people are reunited together. In heaven, we're going to be reunited with all of our loved ones and friends who died in Jesus. One of God's purposes in salvation was to create an eternal family that never fades, where we never experience heartache and we never have to say goodbye. Listen, Dwelling Place Church, those loved ones in Jesus who have been taken from us in death will be restored. They'll be restored. One of my favorite verses, I love this verse. One of my favorite verses in Isaiah 49, the Bible says this, in heaven, this is what the sovereign Lord says in that day, I will give the signal, I don't know, smoke signal, I don't know, alarm alarm clock signal, I don't know what God will give, and they, the angels, will carry your little sons back to you in their arms. They'll bring your daughters on their shoulders. Wow. I have to think that that means parents who've lost children, maybe in an accident, maybe in a disease, maybe in a miscarriage, we've lost two. We'll see that son brought back by the angels in their arms or their lost daughters daughters carried back to them on their shoulders. What a day that will be, church. 
You say, well, what about my children? What about babies? David, of course, expected to see his child who died. He said, I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. Jesus said, regarding children, behold, the face of my father who is in heaven. So children will be in heaven. Will there always be children, Craig? I've been asked that many times. Will they always stay children? You know, James Vernon McGee believes, at least he suggested, that maybe they will be babies until their parents get there, and then they'll have the opportunity of growing up and becoming adults. That's possible. Why? So that the hands that never had the opportunity of feeding that baby on earth will eventually have that privilege in heaven. Oh, I tend to think that's a possibility. Yes, they could grow up to their glorified body in heaven. They will have eternal bodies. There will be no limitation in heaven, whether they're four days old, gestational age, or they died at 20 weeks. There will be no limitations. We not need worry about that. Many women in my life or I've talked to have had abortions. They struggle with the question of how they'll be reconciled to the little ones whom they've aborted. God will make sure that reconciliation takes place so that all throughout eternity, any matter that concerned us on earth will be taken care of in heaven. And a child will be complete and will participate in the full blessings of the God that God has prepared for them that love him. And sometimes some of you who've lost a little loved one, we've lost two. You say, well, why does God take a little child? And I've explained once before, I'll explain again, that when a shepherd wants to take the sheep to a part of the mountain, perhaps a high precipice where the sheep don't want to go, he simply reaches into the flock and he takes a little lamb. He puts one on one arm and one on the other. And he begins to walk, and as he does, the two mothers begin to follow the little lamb. And after they begin to walk along, the others begin to reluctantly follow too. And sometimes what God does is he gives us little ones, and then he reminds us through their death of the fact that heaven is real, and it's the place to where we're all going so mamas will get their hearts off of what is temporal and what is on eternal. And sometimes he uses those little ones to get us to climb the mountain, to get our minds preoccupied with heaven, to get our minds preoccupied with anticipation of meeting on the other side. So yes, what will continue in heaven was personal knowledge, personal love, personal feelings, and personal activities. How do you know this, Craig? Because Luke 16 gives us account. He knows. When he goes to the righteous place, Abraham's bosom, he knows the names of his family members. Read it, Luke 16. He not only knows that, he has compassion for his family members because he still loves them. His personal, personal feelings still continue. It's like a ceaseless area of continuation. Death is, in that sense, our friend. It's our friend. It is. It's not an end, it's a bend in the road. And your consciousness just continues from this part of life to the other. If you're conscious, of course, many people may not be on this side. But if you died in an accident, let us suppose you die very quickly, the consciousness just continues on a continual stream and you're there suddenly. You're the same person, but you meet Christ and the angels as we've explained. Remember I told you back in our series called On Earth As It Is In Heaven, Tweets From Heaven, last year, August. I told you the story of Dr. Sanhorn, the minister in Iowa. He went to visit this little girl who was dying on a Saturday morning, and the little girl was in the bed mumbling. She was just at her death. And she said to Dr. Sanhorn, she said, as soon as they open the gate, I'll go in. And then she said a little while later in discouragement, at least the tone of her voice showed discouragement, she said, Dr. Sanhorn, they let Mammy go in ahead of me. And then a little while later, she said, they let Grandpa go in ahead of me, Dr. Sanhorn. Well, the pastor had something to do, so he left, and he returned later, and he discovered that the girl had died. He was so interested in who Mammy and Grandpa was, he got the family together, and he asked them. He said, I want to follow up. Mammy was not his grandma. Mammy was a girl who had lived with them in Iowa, but this little girl had now moved to New York. And Grandpa was a friend of the family who wasn't Grandpa, who lived in the Southwest. Pastor Sanhorn said, i got to write letters to find out the whereabouts of those people, Mammy and Grandpa. He discovered, guess what, upon their response that they had both died Saturday morning, September 16th. Oh, of course she saw Mammy. Of course she saw Grandpa. She saw him as she was crossing to the other side. You said, Craig, how far away is heaven? It's just a heartbeat. Boom, it's over. It's just as far as a car wreck. It's just as far as a report from the doctor that says you have six months to live and it maybe turns out to three years, but nonetheless, at the end of the road, you die. That's how close heaven is. That's how close heaven is. All of us want to go as long as possibly can, but I want you to know that when God's number strikes, when the clock comes to get you, if you're a believer in Christ, if you've embraced his promises, he will be there to meet you and all will be well. All will be well. But it's a reunion. Of course, the greatest reunion is not your reunion with your lost ones or the ones that you've lost to heaven. 
The greatest union is with God himself. Who will be permanently in our midst? Look at Revelation 22 and 4. They, that means we believers, will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Ha. At night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp nor sun. For the Lord God will be their light. I think night here, by the way, is symbolic. I don't mean that the earth will stop rotating, but I think that the night of fear and sins will be gone is what the writer's telling us. His presence will be our constant light. We will never feel the darkness of loneliness. Come on, somebody shout. We will never feel the darkness of abandonment. We'll never feel the darkness of judgment. We'll bask forever in the beauty and the glory of our God's face, radiating with truth and Christ-like presence and beauty and love. And we will be so intimately connected to Him, we'll have His name tattooed on our heads. I'm assuming that's symbolic in some way, but a tattoo signifies a permanent relationship. Hear this. Heaven's greatest joy is reunion. The greatest reunion is reunion with God himself. Anybody looking forward to being reunited with God himself? And we will enjoy his eternal and loving and powerful companionship forever and ever. And our hearts will be so filled with love and delight for him, we won't know how to contain it. We'll just dance and sing and shout. We can't keep it contained. Our God has promised us this, not only renewal and reunion, but number three, release. Release. I'm not making this up straight out of verse 4. Look at Revelation 21, our text again. The Bible says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. No pain means no chronic illness. I thought I'd get one amen. No pain means no aching joints. Amen. No tears means no depression. No fear, no worry, no stress, no misunderstanding, no relational conflicts, no betrayal, no more emergency rooms, no more intensive care wards, no more chemotherapy units, no more pharmacies, no more children's hospitals, no more funeral homes, no more homicide departments, no more grief counselors, no more need for counselors, no more need for security guards, no more tax forms. And dear God, no more long lines at the DMV. God has already saved us from the punishment of sin, but there we will be saved from the power and presence of sin and ultimately the pain of sin. This is the final work of salvation. Listen, church, one day the same hands that were pierced for you will wipe away gently every tear from your eyes. And we will finally experience a world without sin, which, by the way, might be the most greatest overlooked benefit of heaven. That's the part we never talk about. No sin! The older I get, I'm only 32. Heaven looks better and better because I finally won't be able to sin. I won't be touched and tainted by sin, cursed by sin. I'll finally, for the first time in my life, be able to look out these eyes without the selfishness and suspicion and jealousy that plagues my heart daily now. No more suspicion. No more jealousy. What's it like to be sinless, church? To have a pure heart in everything. Let's think about it. Let's imagine it. Sometimes when people ask, when Jesus wipes away our tears, does that mean that we won't be able to remember what happened on earth? No. It means he transforms our pain into joy. That's what wiping tears away means. He transforms pain into joy. I figured it would be helpful today for me to give you three scriptural images of how you'll view your pain one minute after you die. You want to know how you're going to view your pain? I'm talking about the worst pain you've ever experienced on planet earth. The worst pain you've ever experienced. Here's how you'll experience or see it. Number one, internalize these, by the way. Romans 8 calls it birth. Birth. The pain of creation is like the birth pangs of labor. It's not that you forget the pain when you have the baby. It's just that, that it's almost lost in the joy of the birth when you hold that baby for the first time. Oh, it's overwhelming. It's overwhelming how, how many human emotions went off in me when I saw Knox come out of his mom's belly for the first time. Oh, my God, I've never experienced anything like it. It happened with baby two and three, but baby one was something altogether different. Oh, it was something else. And I didn't have to experience the pain. My wife experienced great pain with those pregnancies. But you know what? It's souped up and swallowed up in the joy of having a baby. I had a, read a book years ago, a friend who had a brain cancer. And he said, you know what? Before I had brain cancer, I always thought heaven was the place that you get, you get to heaven and you ask God of why you had to go through all the bad things. And God gives you a reason. You went through that bad thing because of this. And you went through that bad thing because of that. And you went through this painful time because of that. He says, now that I've got brain cancer and I've been trusting in Jesus, he says, I don't believe that anymore. He says, when I get to heaven, I'll be one minute on that side of eternity. I'll look back and say, what bad pain? What bad things happen? They're going to be so swallowed up in victory and joy 
and the process that God led you on, God's finished product will be so amazing you won't even remember the process he used to get you there. You won't remember the pain you endured, the difficulties you experienced. Mother Teresa said the worst suffering on earth is like one night in a bad, cheap hotel. You never stayed in a bad, cheap hotel. Let me inform you. It is bad. Last November, we went to Oklahoma to the deer hunt. It was just three guys, me, my dad, and another friend. So we just dropped off in, somewhere in Oklahoma. And we just got the cheapest hotel. We only need about three or four hours to lay flat. We long people can't sleep in truck chairs. It's hard. I needed to get flat. He needed to get flat. So we got in this hotel. We didn't sleep much. I went in the bathroom, flushed the toilet, and the toilet above me dropped water on me, I think, from the, from the ceiling above. I mean, it was, it was awesome, man. It was just a bad, cheap hotel. But listen, I don't care what you experience. You can experience cancer for 50 years, but when you get one moment that side of eternity, the worst suffering on earth will be just like one single night in a bad, cheap hotel. Just one night. You won't remember it. I don't remember this bad, cheap hotel now because I get to lay beside this beautiful woman every night in a bed that I love. It's all swallowed up. It's all swallowed up. The other image Paul uses is not just birth. He says swallowing. I like to swallow because I like to eat. Can I get an amen? First Corinthians 15, but it, he said, Paul said death is swallowed up in victory. Swallowed up. Don't you like that? When you swallow something, it becomes part of you. The Velveeta shell with macaroni and cheese becomes a part of you the moment it goes down the esophagus. I don't know about you. There's this keto guy walking all around dwelling place. He, he keeps on infecting every one of you. Keto, I don't know who he is or where he comes from, but keto, this dude is popular. I mean, he is, he is drawing a lot of people to his side, but you understand, it becomes a part of you. You've probably seen someone you love go through suffering and, you really, and really grow from it. How many of you would say you've been through something suffering in your life, some painful chapter of whose purpose you couldn't understand at the time, but it led to some good effect in your life? How many... Now look at this. Now think about this. Think about this. If we already with limited time and limited perspective can see how pain is used for good in our life, what do you think is going to happen when we got infinite time for all eternity and God's perspective to view all of the little small hiccups we had on earth of how it ultimately weaved into us the beauty and the glory of God? What would it be like when we realized there was not one stray molecule on the earth? that God couldn't use for our good, that God is sovereign over every atom, that God is, in fact, sovereign. J.R. Tolkien, I love read J.R. Tolkien. He used one of the best phrases that Sally Lloyd-Jones uses all throughout her, her memoirs later. But he said in that moment, on the final day, this is what J.R. Tolkien said. He said, all the sad things on earth will come untrue. Now, come untrue doesn't mean we forget about them altogether. It just means that the bad effects turn into good effects. God takes painful things with devastating effects and re weaves them for his great purpose. But the count I love the most is Joni Erickson Tata. Joni Erickson Tata was a diver, and she became a quadriplegic when she was a teenager. She broke her neck, and she used her mouth to do most of functioning for the rest of her life. She's now in her 70s, and she stayed in a wheelchair bound as a quadriplegic, and God used that accident to bring her back to himself. She was not serving the Lord, and this is what she said. I hope in some way I can take my wheelchair to heaven. With my new glorified body, I, I'm going to stand up from that wheelchair and on resurrected legs, and I'm going to be next to the Lord Jesus, and I will feel those nail prints in his hands, and I'll say, thank you, Jesus. He will know I mean it because he will recognize me from how much I leaned on him during my sufferings. He knows what my head feels like. And then I will say, Lord Jesus, do you see that wheelchair over there? Well, you were right. When you put me in it, it was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on your chest. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. And I don't think I would have ever known the glory of your grace were it not for the weakness of that wheelchair. So thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. But now, if you like, you can send that thing off to hell. That's how you'll think about your pain. Joni Erickson taught us, said, the first thing I'll do on resurrected legs is go to bended knees. <laughs> I will honor the one who is faithful. I will pour out my love on the one who is worthy. So it's renewal, it's reunion, it's very clear. But it's also reassignment. Reassignment. Look at verse 3. Like I mentioned at the beginning, lots of people have this image of being really bored in heaven. Not so. We don't sit around strumming harps and flying and firing off Nerf arrows in the sky. We don't do that. 
Look how heaven's described in chapter 22, verse 3, and his servants will serve him. His servants will serve him. What do servants do? They serve. Servants aren't bored. They're busy. They're constantly going places and doing things. Work, you see, was a part of God's original creation. Work was not a part of the curse. Do you understand this? In paradise, you worked. So what that means is that work in the kingdom, work in heaven, is going to be part of the new creation. It means when God restores the earth, work will be a part of it. It just won't be full of worry, toil, struggle, and bad bosses. Amen. God will assign each of you very fulfilling work in heaven. God knows how you're shaped. He knows how you designed you. He knows what you love to do. Maybe you're already doing it. Maybe you love to build buildings and you're already building buildings. Praise God. Maybe you love to be an engineer and you're already engineering. Awesome. Praise God. Maybe some of you like to be a producer and you're already producing. Praise God. But there's only two kinds of jobs we know won't be there. There won't be doctors and nurses because no one's sick and no pastors because everyone's saved. So I'm going to have to be retrained. I'm going to have to be retrained. That's the one job that's gone. I know no, nobody to preach to. I already know what I'm going to be, a neurologist. I'm going to operate on people's brains even though they're already resurrected and in perfect condition. I just love them that much. <laughs> Me and Ben Carson are going to hang out together. <sighs> Maybe I'll coach football too. I've always wanted to be a Tennessee football coach. Maybe I'll coach Tennessee in the kingdom. I don't know. Maybe that's the only thing that helped Tennessee football at this point is the kingdom. There's a reassignment. But suffice it to say, we won't be bored. Boredom is the part of the curse. How many of you adults want to ever slap some young people for Jesus? Anybody ever want to slap some young people for Jesus? When I click on social media and I see a young person say, man, I'm bored this night. I'm like, what is boredom? I want to slap somebody for Jesus. I'm like, where did boredom go? What happened to boredom? I don't even know what this is. What is this? Right? There's no boredom. Boredom's a part of the curse. It's a part of the curse. We'll be more fulfilled, more engaged, and more alive feeling than we've ever felt in our lives. Why? Because we're reassigned. Reassigned. For some of you, that'd be the first time you lived according to your calling because you never found it here because you didn't get to do what you needed to do or something happened in your life that kept you from reaching your fullest potential. I want to tell you, don't worry about it because you're going to work at your fullest potential there. You're going to work in exactly what God has gifted you to do. Number five, reign. 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 The Bible says in verse 5, they will reign forever and ever. They will reign forever and ever. I'll be honest with you. I don't want to lie to you. I'm not quite sure over whom we reign. <laughs> Some have said angels. Others say it's creation itself. Theologians differ. C.S. Lewis thought it might be reigning as kings and queens over other beings and other universes that God created. I tend to like that because I like neuros- air and space science, you know. So I like the fact that there are other solar systems and we could reign over some planets. My favorite part of all the Chronicles of Narnia, Last book, book number seven. The book ends this way from Clive Staples Lewis. So for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, that's all the characters in the story. It was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, the story which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, and in which each chapter is better than the one before. We've not even got beyond the TOC yet, the table of contents. And when we enter into eternity in the kingdom, we've just started chapter one. And no one's read that story yet. Oh, does your imagination go, I hope it does. That's very redemptive when you do this. Whoever thinks on such things purifies himself now, First John says. I'm not sure exactly who we reign over or how we reign, but I'm looking forward to finding out. The point is you're destined to be royalty. You're destined to lead, to reign. You're not destined to be insignificant. You're not destined to be a groveling peon with no importance or responsibility. God created you to be a reigning prince or princess, so start acting that way. Amen? Now, I'm not saying boss people around, you're a servant too. But what I'm saying is carry yourself with the dignity that you belong to the king's family. So renewal, reunion, release, reassignment, and reign. Now before I conclude this section, let me draw out a few things that this means for us practically. Let me reflect on it with you. Can I reflect for a few moments? Number one, put up your bucket list. Put up your bucket list. You know what bucket lists are all? They're things that you want to do before you die because you assume you'll never have a chance to do them again. That's never true for the Christian. 
When Jesus says he's making all things new, that doesn't that mean all mountains, all stars, all rivers, all oceans, all Costa Rican zip lines, all planets, all animals, all culture, all shark dives, all arts, all music, all architecture, all extreme sports that you never got to experience? Does anybody in your Bible have an asterisk and says go to the bottom? And the bottom says all doesn't mean all in the contract with God. It actually just means some of the things. No, it says all. All means all. God is making all things new. You know what that means? For those of you who are single, the joys of marriage and family will be in some way even more greatly fulfilled there than it is here. There's no need for a bucket list when you're a Christian because you're going to be back on this in a renewed earth and a new heavens and new earth. Put away the bucket list. Revelation 21, 26 says that they will bring, oh, I love this. Woo, I love this. They will bring into it what? Heaven, the glory and the honor of the nations. You know what that means? That means the best of culture is going to be in the heaven. That means the best Italian food makes Maggiano's look like crystal. The best of Arabian and colonial architecture, which is my favorite, by the way. The best of the Renaissance paintings. The best of Disney World. That's hell for me, but maybe heaven for you. The best of Mardi Gras. There'll only be two or three items there, but still, the best of Mardi Gras makes it in. It's not much good and redemptive in it. But, But there's one thing we can't do there that we can do here, and that's tell people about Jesus. So tear up your bucket list and put that on the bucket list. Why would you want to do something and spend all your money to do something here that you're going to get to do in a heightened more experience there anyways? So don't have a bucket list. Use the rest of your life to get a bucket of fish. To go after people who don't know Jesus. Because that's what you can't do there. That's what's forever lost there. Second thing, stop being depressed about aging. We in America, we hate aging. Some of you are bothered by this. It depresses you to see your beauty fade and your body decline. Listen, I get it. I'm 32 now. I'm young. I'm already feeling this. Sometimes I wake up in the morning sore, and all I did the night before was sleep. I mean, somehow I went from like that position to that position, and it wore me out. Flat wore my back out. I don't know what in the world happened. And you know what I'm talking about? I mean, somehow, brothers and sisters, I got good news. I got a glorified version of this body waiting that you probably won't be able to keep your hands off of. So stop being depressed about your passing your peak. A better version of your mind is there. I told Anthony Oroyo, a better version of your muscles is there. A better version of your beauty awaits there. You have never hit your peak as a believer. Wow, isn't that cool? You've never hit your peak. Number three, let's teach our kids to look forward to this. Can we do that? Tell them that for all they love on earth, they will have a better and heavenly version there. When they're going down a water slide at Whitewater, don't say, well, enjoy it now because there's not going to be any water in heaven, so go learn some Bible verses, buddy. No, tell them. Teach them they have a heavenly father of such endless goodness and endless creativity. Say, what's this cotton candy going to taste like in heaven? What's this Reese's peanut butter egg at Easter going to look like at the resurrection, the real resurrection, right? Come on, Jesus. People have often asked me, will their dogs be in heaven? I used to consider, I used to give what I considered tough truth. I would say things like, no, dogs won't make it in heaven because they don't have eternal souls. Here's what I say now. I say, you know what? It's a new heaven and a new earth with a healed version of all that we love down here. So you go figure out what that means. Somebody said, how about my cat? Don't push it. (laughs) We'll talk about hell in just a moment. Devil goes like a roaring lion, kitty cat, okay? Don't push it. Cats are demonic. (laughs) But let's teach our kids that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift and that eye has not seen nor ear has heard what God has prepared. Come on, can I get an amen? Lastly and finally, understand what you're longing for. Understand what you're longing for. C.S. Lewis said the fact that we long for something beyond the grave is a strong indication that something actually exists. He said fish don't complain of being wet. Fish don't try to get out of the sea for being wet. He said if they tried to get out of the sea for being wet, wouldn't that fact strongly suggest they had not been created to be aquatic creatures? C.S. Lewis says we long to step out of the sea of time into the land of eternity. Doesn't that show we were created for eternity and not land? If I find in myself something in this desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the best argument is that I was created for another world. Understand what you're longing for. Listen, some of you in here, you struggle to believe. You're spiritual seekers. We welcome you. We love you. But I want you to wrestle with the fact that there's something in you that knows that you were created for more than just having a job, having sex, and procreating. You know that. There's longing and a sense of desire for you. You feel a long for meaning. 
These are not just illusions created by the chemicals in our brains programmed by evolution as survival mechanisms to help us propagate our DNA into the future faster than our neighbor. (laughs) That's what science tells us, but that's not the reality. Can you quit telling yourself it's courageous to embrace that life is meaningless and realize that to embrace that life is meaningless is not courageous, it's unnatural and counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. You long for eternity because you were created with meaning by eternal God. Say, Craig, are you done? As much as I want to be done with this message, theologically, I can't. Because John's final vision gives us a glimpse of the eternal, another destination called hell. I want to tell you something really quickly about hell. See, most of us, we think our default destination is heaven. But scripture, like like we go to heaven unless we mess something up. But scripture paints a different picture. Heaven's not our default destination. It's not our default. It's called hell. Let's look up at our text, Revelation 21. Remember where we left off, verse 8, he said, it's better for the cowardly, the fatherless, and the detestable, and murderers, the sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. As I was studying this this week, I thought of the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, these are such weighty things that when I dwell on them, I don't, I feel way more inclined to sit down and weep than I do to stand up and speak in a pulpit. It's not fun to be a preacher and preach about hell. You want to weep about hell. But it's a reality Jesus gives clear. There's three things we learn about hell in the last two chapters of the Bible. Number one, hell is an eternal place of torment. The images are off of fire, burning sulfur, eternal death. I told you a few weeks ago, there's some debate as to what is metaphor and what is literal in Revelation. But I told you, even if these things are symbols, they point to a terrible reality. And in Revelation, the reality is always more terrible than the symbol. The symbol's just the closest earthly representation to a terrible reality. Whatever they're speaking of is unspeakably awful. People say, is it really eternal? I have to assume so, because the same word that's used for everlasting life is used for everlasting death. So it's eternal. And the smoke of their torment, the Bible says, goes on forever and ever. It's eternal. Jonathan Edwards, 18th century American theologian who wrote Hanners in the, yeah, sinners, Hanners, sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I want to I quote to you what he said. He said, if you take these things seriously, you have to imagine yourself being cast into a fiery oven. You're glowing with heat, and imagine that your body was going to lie there for a quarter of an hour, 15 minutes, full of fire, inside and out, filling every fiber of the fire the whole time. What horror you would feel at the entrance of such a furnace, and how long would that quarter of an hour seem to you? If it was measured by an hourglass, how slowly would the time seem to go? And after you endured it for a minute, how overbearing would it be to think that you had another 14 minutes left? What if you knew you must lie there enduring that torment and its fullness for 24 hours? How much greater if you know you had to endure it for a whole year? How much greater if you knew you must endure it for a thousand years? But wouldn't your heart just sink if you knew you must bear it forever and ever, that there would be no end, that after millions and millions of ages, your torment would be no nearer then than it was when you first began? And you'll never be rescued. But your torment in hell will be immeasurably greater than this. How utterly inexpressible and inconceivable. How your heart and soul would sink in such a case. People say, how is that fair, Pastor Craig? 70 years of sin doesn't equal eternity in hell. Listen to me. Sin gains its wickedness by the one it's committed against. I've told you before, punch a wall, you got to rebuild the wall. Punch a dog, you get in a fight with a person. Punch a woman, you're going to jail. But you try to punch President Trump or the Queen of England, you're going to get more than jail. Sin gains its wickedness by the whom the sin is directed against. Sin against an infinitely holy God is infinitely wicked. Sin against an eternal God warrants eternal punishment. It's not the duration of the crime of 70 years. It's the dignity of the one against the crime was committed that determines the severity of the punishment. And if he's holy, that means you get holy damnation. If he's eternal, you get eternal damnation. The severity of the punishment is determined by the dignity of the one to whom the crime was committed. And that is holy God. You say, well, why can't God just let it go? Well, justice is the foundation of the universe. He is just. His justice demands retribution. Don't we hate when we see justice aborted? We hate it when somebody gets off of scotch-free, whether it be George Zimmerman or O.J. Simpson. God will ultimately right all wrongs and restore justice to the universe, and that's what hell is. And you say, well, why didn't God do something about it? He has. 
put on Jesus every sin that you ever committed, past, present, and future. There's only two ways to pay for sin. The eternal God, the eternal Son of God can die for it, or you can pay for it eternally. But if you won't receive His invitation, what else do you expect God to do? What else can He do? In the end, if you say to God, in the end, you say to God, Thy will be done, or He says to you, Your will be done. Go away from my presence. It's one of options. This leads me to the last two things. Hell is a little door locked from the inside. Come on, team. It's a little door locked from the inside. This might be one of the most illuminating verses I've ever seen on hell. And I don't know how many times I've skipped it, looked over it. But Revelation 22, 11, The angel says this. He says, Let the evil doer still do evil. And let the filthy still be filthy. And the righteous still do right. And the holy still be held holy. What, do you, what does that mean? It means people in eternity don't change. The people in hell never repent. And they don't want to repent. They remain filthy. They remain haters of God's authority. Their hearts remain unjust. Their hearts remain corrupted. It's a door locked from the inside. Yeah, they hate the torment, but they hate the authority of God more. C.S. Lewis in his book called The Great Divorce, it's a fiction book. He, he talks about a bus trip that people in hell take to heaven. And the people in hell get to heaven and they want to go back to hell yeah they hate the punishment but they hate the authority of God more one of the greatest uh, atheists in our time Frederick Nietzsche at the turn of the 20th century he said I'd rather go into nothingness than surrender my will to the God of the Bible he said I would rather be a king in hell than a servant in heaven I've got bad news for you Frederick there are no kings in hell you're all tormented and suffering there's no there's no kings some theologians here, they say what is being communicated by the image of eternal fire and worm is that it never dies. It's insatiable. Can I just tell you real quick, I'm closing. That's what sin does if we don't keep it in check. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. It's always complaining. It's always bitterness. It's always blaming others. And at first, when you start sinning like that, it feels something distinct from you. Like you can turn it on and turn it off, but it grows and grows until it consumes you and it becomes an inextricable part of your personality. You become your grumbling. Anybody ever live with someone like this? You become your hatred. It becomes inextricable. It becomes your personality. Hell is where the sins you refuse to repent of on earth consume you like a burning fire in your heart. And in hell, you become your jealousy. You become your insecurity. You become your materialism. You become your suspicion. You become your fear. You become your distrust. Only Jesus can remove the curse from your heart. Death represents a line where you become so fixed in the decisions you made on earth that the sins that you would not repent of consume you. And the evil doer still does evil. And the filthy still does filthy things. That's, by the way, why God can't let sinners in heaven. Do you know that? Because we would make heaven hell. We would release rape, violence, rage, infidelity. And heaven would be full of pride and violence and treachery and cruelty because we would infect heaven with what we were established in in earth. And the final thing is hell, not heaven, is our default destination. I told you, most people assume they'll go to heaven as long as they don't mess up badly. Scripture presents the opposite. We all go to hell. God did create hell for us. He created us for heaven, but the rebellion of the human race and the sin disease passed down through Adam like a blood disease. It's destined us for hell. And I end with this text, Revelation 21.8. Look at the scripture says. I, I love this, but it scares the tar out of me too. Look at Revelation 21.8. You've got the ones that you would expect to be in hell, like the murderers and sorcerers, but it includes a lot of people who you find in church too. That's what I don't like about this verse. Can I be honest with you? I don't like this verse. Because I'm good with a couple of these, but other, other of these sound like church people. Like what? The cowardly? Those who would never stand for Jesus in front of their friends? Cowardly. Faithless. Those who went to church but never really trusted God enough to obey Him? Never trusted Him in their relationships? Never trusted Him with their money? Never trusted Him with their source? Idolaters. Those who wouldn't put God first in their lives, they sat through church, but they never would surrender. What about liars? 
Those who came to church but whose submission to God was not sincere. Their relationship with God in here portrayed was not genuine. Can we just admit that there's not one of us that's never not been found in that list? We've all been in that list. So you know what that means? We need heaven. How do we get heaven? This is how Jesus ends the whole book of Revelation. I got good news for you. He says in Revelation 22, 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. Everybody say, come. And let, let the one who hears say, come. Say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Come on, say, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Jesus ends the book saying, you don't have to do that. The price has been paid. Jesus paid it all, but you've got to receive it. And Revelation ends with the voice of the Spirit saying, Come, you don't have to go to hell. Come, Jesus died with you, before you so that you could be with him. Enjoy heaven uh, heaven forever, but you have to receive it sincerely. You have to respond to it personally. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.